that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they, they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're simply asking this morning that you would be our vision as we seek to understand the revelation that you've left for us through these scriptures. We pray that you would uh, enlighten us, guide us, teach us who you are and who we should be in this world. Father, we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One experience that I enjoy the most about getting to know a person or people in general is having the opportunity to go to their childhood home and see where they grew up. Have you guys done that before? You meet someone, a friend or anyone, and then eventually you get the chance to go and see where they grew up, right? I especially love perusing through the photo albums and stopping to look at the photo gallery of pictures hanging on the wall, right? Why? Because besides it being a trip through time, <laughs> right? It's like a little revelation to, uh, uh, to an extent, like the revealing of a person, right? You learn a little bit more about an individual and you kind of start to understand uh, uh, better why they do what they do or they don't do, right? Why they are the way they are, why they like what they like, right? And it's of course not the whole story of the person, 
but it's new insight, right? And it gives perspective. It's even better when mom or dad begins narrating photos, right? And like, oh, this is him naked in the bathtub and blah, 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 and he fell off his bike. All of that, I love all of it. Give me all of the goods, right? You get the back back story, the inside scoop, right? And after leaving the house, you might look at your friends a little differently, right? Perhaps a little clearer. Well, on the road to Emmaus, two disciples, sad and hopeless, were walking on the road headed to this village. It was the third day after the crucifixion of Jesus, and they were down and out. Right? Now, of course they were. They had just lost a loved one. Right? They were grieving. Now, these were not disciples we understand to be part of the 12, but they were disciples of Christ nonetheless with thorough acquaintance with Jesus' teachings and his life and his ministry. And so Jesus had been crucified, and they were confused, they were grieving, they were mourning. Now, the mission of Jesus was, at least for them, clearly completely different than they had anticipated. Instead of what they thought, he was nailed to a cross, and after dying, sealed away in a tomb. Though Jesus had told them what was to come, they didn't quite understand it, and they had even forgotten some of the words that he'd spoken. So as they walked to Emmaus, Jesus cloaks himself and draws near, listening to their conversation. So in Luke chapter 24, verse 17, says this, Jesus speaking, and he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? He asked them, What things? What things? The interesting thing is that Cleopas, one of these disciples, began to outline for this visitor, for this stranger, what he knew of the events that had just happened prior, right? And also what he thought he knew of the Messiah called Christ. And when he concludes, by verse 25, Jesus then replies and says this. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then here's the key verse, verse 27. Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. You know, sometimes what we think we know of God or what we think we understand about God and the world may need some fine-tuning. To that I say, keep reading. Jesus then goes on this, this hermeneutical journey, which means just in, interpreting, right? This hermeneutical journey and begins to help these disciples interpret the meaning of the law, the prophets, and the writings, basically the Torah, right? 
and the way in which they reveal him, the Messiah, begins expounding on scripture. And it's interesting because instead of revealing himself by uncloaking and being like, here I am, it's me, he continues to operate as a stranger and reveals himself through the scriptures to give these two disciples a clearer revelation of who he is. Interesting. You know what that says to me? It says that Jesus didn't need to be physically present in that moment for them to have a proper understanding of who he was. Jesus was sure that there was enough revelation in the Torah or in the, in the Old Testament for one to get a decent understanding of the character of God and his mission. And he was willing to reveal that because God wants humanity to know him. These same Hebrew scriptures, that same portion of scripture that Jesus used to show them how it reflected him, how it spoke of him, are the same scriptures we hold in our possession today. The same ones. Keep reading. Now, that isn't to say that the only way that God reveals himself is through scripture or writings, right? God uses a variety of ways to communicate to humanity in a way that we can understand, right? Each mode of revelation adds to the greater picture of who God is, right? So through works like creation, the natural world that you see around you, or through a particular group of people, the covenant people of Israel at that time, right? Through prophets or appointed messengers, or through apostles or eyewitnesses of accounts, through dreams, through visions, through direct speech, through messages from angels, or even divine encounters, God uses all of these ways to reveal himself to the human family. Some are supernatural ways, right? And some are not so supernatural. They're very normal, like books and written records. But then, there's this buildup to the greatest revelation, and that is God himself in the person of Jesus Christ coming to dwell with people. Emmanuel, God with us. But there's another revelation of God, and we'll come to that later at the end of the message. Now, this is a good time. If you like taking notes, this would be a great one. We're going to do a little lesson here on the Bible that we hold in our hands. So speaking specifically about the scriptures as a means of God revealing himself, a favorite preacher of mine in the past used to start every sermon with the same opening line. He would say, the Bible is the inspired word of God. Inspired. What does that mean? What does that mean? Now, we've been following along with the book God With Us by John Peckham. And so um, if that is where I'll be pulling the quotes from, and that's where you can also find all of the topics and information that we've been talking about throughout this series. But one of the quotes about inspiration that is found in the book says, inspiration is the process 
by which prophets and apostles, someone who is sent, express in human words the content which God has revealed to them. Okay? The writers of scripture are able to communicate the thought or the vision or the message of God in their own words in a way that they can best understand and explain. Inspiration does not interfere with or take over the human thought process. It's not a type of forceful possession. That's not what inspiration is. So when 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God or inspired by God, we understand that to mean that when the original thought or content of a subject was given by God, it was penned and communicated by humans in a way that humanity can understand. Are you following me? Great. <laughs> For example, if I placed a picture up of the Church of the Advent Hope, up on this board, right? And then I told everyone to describe it. Those describing it would highlight it in a way that they best understood and knew how to communicate. They'd talk about what it looked like or what goes on inside or this, and it would be a little different for everyone based on how they comprehend it and how they'd like to explain it, right? But the content is not coming from their own choosing. It was given. The scriptures are a product of both divine and human work, right? Peckham says it better this way from the book. He says, Scripture is the result of both divine and human activity, inspired by God, but written by imperfect humans. The content is divine, but the mode of communication is very human. All right, so within this divine human revelation, many begin to wonder, right? How did we settle on the 66 books of the Bible that we currently have? The biblical canon, right, the word canon means an authoritative collection of writings. It, the biblical canon is what Christians view as the word of God, okay? When it comes to understanding the, the determination behind the, the divine authority of the current scriptures, the 66 books, right, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, there are two approaches, Okay, there are two approaches to understanding. The first approach is called the community canon. And I'll stand over here. The community canon, which is an approach that communicates that what constitutes or what makes up the biblical canon is determined by a community of people and is authoritative based on that community's authority. So if that community has authority, if that group of people has authority, then they say, okay, this book is, uh, uh, is significant. And based on their ranking, they, they, they give uh, the scripture uh, a ranking or a standard or authority. Right? That's one position. That's called the community canon approach. And that approach has a number of implications, which we can't cover this morning. The second approach, though, when looking at how to understand how we got the 66 books and what makes them authoritative. The second approach is called 
the intrinsic canon approach, which is what most Protestants, uh, uh, the stance most Protestants take when it comes to speaking about the 66 books of scripture, all right? And this communicates that the biblical canon was determined by God himself and its authority is merely recognized by humans. So basically, they're divine and authoritative whether or not a community believes they are or not. They are because of their self-proclamation, and you'll see a number of categories that I'm going to tell you right now. Well, how do you know if God determines something to have divine authority, right? How do we look at something and say, oh, God says that this is authoritative? Well, there are three categories identified that speak to this uh, uh, determination, right? So, if a writing is prophetic, or if there's a, a testimony of an apostle, a first eyewitness, right, then that is one category we use to understand that this uh, is, uh, has authority, a divine authority. Was the book written by a divinely commissioned prophet, or a first-generation apostle, or first-generation close associate, like someone like Luke, right, who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts? Uh, did, they have a, did they record a testimony? Right? That's one way. That's one category. The second category is, is this writing or group of writings, is it consistent with past revelation? What has already been revealed? What do we already know uh, about, pre, about other scriptures? What has already been said? Is this new thing that we're looking at, is it consistent with what's already been revealed about God and about uh, the children of Israel, etc.? right? We understand that God does not contradict himself. Titus 1-2 says God doesn't lie. There's no flip-flop. God does not change. We, there should be harmony and consistency with a work that's divine. Right? The last category, self-authenticating features. What does that mean? That means there's evidence in the writings themselves that declare that this is an authoritative piece of work a divine authoritative piece of work. What does that mean? We'll look at some statements by Jesus and, and clarify that. But with the intrinsic canon approach, the scripture dictates to the community, not the community dictating the scripture. Okay? Now, it doesn't mean every book falls under all three categories. It means that each book cannot fail when identifying these categories within it. Hope this is making a little sense. Get to some scriptures. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament have internal evidence and external evidence from history and other writings that support recognizing them as part of the biblical canon or as part of recognizing the works as a divine authoritative uh, piece of work, piece of writing. So, Jesus, Jesus identified the law and the prophets as authoritative in scripture. He says it many times throughout the gospels. For example, he says in Matthew chapter five, verse 17, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill, right? Affirming 
that the law and the prophets, the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, what they were reading, Jesus is not abolishing, right? He's affirming that they are authoritative, and he says, I've come to fulfill them. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus clearly has read the Torah, has read the Old Testament, and he says, look, if I summarized it for you, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is the law, the prophets, and the writings. The writings being the Psalms and the uh, uh, wisdom literature, etc. Matthew 22, verse 34 through 40 says this. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And then he says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus saying that the Old Testament, if I were to summarize it for you, love for God, love for your neighbor. I affirm that what is written there, this is, this is the summary of it, right? And then in uh, the writings of, of the apostles, Peter calls Paul's letters the scriptures in 2, Timothy, 2 Peter verse 3, 16. And then Paul affirms the words uh, received from the apostles. Uh, he says, they are the word of God, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. All right? So self-authenticating. Point being this, I said a lot, but point being this that we understand that the compilation of the 66 books contained in our Protestant Bible have been found to identify as either prophetic or apostolic or during a time when the apostles were alive, written, consistent with past revelation, or self-authenticating. Okay, Michelle, that was a lot. This is all a great lesson on scripture and how the Bible came to be and, and, and all that good stuff. But the real question is this, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Why does this matter? <laughs> Innocent people, men, women, and children are dying at this very moment in Gaza, in Ukraine, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Mass shootings are still happening regularly in America. Why does it matter? People's lives, they, they would say, my life is a failure, right? I'm still poor, I'm still broke, I'm still sick, I still have hab habits I can't kick. I'm still angry, my family still hates me, I'm still out of a job, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Well, if I were to answer this question, I would say there's one word, 
Perspective. Perspective. It matters because divine revelation provides a perspective of the human experience from the eyes of God. And perspective impacts relationship. How you see God impacts the way you engage with him, impacts the way you see the world. And in the process of God revealing his heart to humanity through the narrative of scripture, we better understand the relationship between God and people and the relationship between people and people. And as we, as we better understand who God is, we better understand who we are and, and the high, holy, happy, and dignified existence he's called us to. The scriptures are a revelation of God, but they are also a revelation of the depth of depravity that humanity can fall to without the love of God working in and through them. So when we see war, and we see mass murder and genocide and all kinds of evil and deficiencies in the human family, we begin to ask different questions because perspective. And we begin to pause before we ask this question, which many people are asking right now, where is God? Look, God is where he's always been with us, with us. The questions are actually what God asks Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter three after taking of the forbidden fruit in the garden and then also asking Cain after he murders his brother Abel in chapter four of Genesis. God says, what have you done? What have you, Cain, done? What have you, Eve, done? Implication, this is not my work. I did not do this. You did this. With the free will, with the power of choice, and the ability to make decisions with this power that God has given to humanity, this is the decision you made. You did this. You chose evil. Now, there, of course, is another key piece to why the world is the way it is. Satan, the enemy, the adversary of God, is the source of inciting humanity to evil. However, we still have a choice, and God says, you did this. Cain, what have you done? The people fighting and killing innocent people, what have you done? So while we're here asking God questions, where are you? From the beginning, we can see that God, in fact, is asking us the same questions. Where are you? And what have you done? 
with the power that you've been given, with the reign, with the territory you've come to possess, what have you done? And then, just like in the garden, God doesn't leave us. He doesn't leave, but he is with us. On the grounds, in our pain, in our suffering, and then provides in that garden the solution for evil, demonstrated with symbol until the time of its fulfillment, until God could actually come and be with us, Emmanuel. The solution? God offers himself up as a sacrifice. God dies and resurrects on the third day, showing he's victorious over sin and death, which doesn't undo the decisions that have been made, which doesn't do away with the consequences of individual actions, but provides a hope and an eventual conclusion to the brokenness of the world. Within God's introduction to himself in the first few chapters of Genesis, God outlines the gospel and his plan to save humanity from a mess that has gotten us, gotten us in way over our heads. He says, look, it's messy, but I'll take care of it. In the meantime, while we understand the conclusion of things, the revelation of God through scripture helps us understand God, understand his plan for the world, and his calling to us in these times. Perspective impacts relationship. And although God doesn't necessarily swoop down like a, like a crime-stopping Spider-Man that people wish that he would, he does an internal work in human beings to transform them from within. And get this, this is the last piece to how God reveals himself that I spoke of before. And he transforms us so that we can be the revelation of himself, of love, to a world that desperately needs light. It's you. It's me. Those who have encountered God must reveal him. Now, and that's not a passive revealing. That's not a sit in my seat and you know, twiddle my thumbs, revealing. It's active. You and I demonstrate the beauty of who God is through the transformation that we've experienced and through God-motivated action for justice, for peace, for truth, and love. We begin to speak for, the, for, for those without a voice. Help those who are oppressed. All of these things, when we see ills in society, we sit on boards, we excel at our crafts so that we can, we can impact positive change. In the midst of a war-torn and chaotic world, 
Where are we, God says. What have you done? When I was doing ministry one summer, I was cold portering and we had a couple of days off. I decided to take a friend of mine back to my house where my mother could feed us uh, a fabulous Nigerian cuisine. And as the food was cooking, I said, hey, just make yourself cozy, sit occupied, and I passed him a bunch of photo albums. A bunch of photo albums of the family, my albums that I had crafted from high school all by myself. And he's going through them, he's looking and he's laughing and chuckling and ooh, ah, ooh. Keeping himself occupied till the food was ready. And after we had, we had eaten, we had finished, and we were heading back out to go sell more books, he says, I get it. He looks at me. He starts chuckling. I get it. That's why you, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> you know what? When I was, I was listening to your mom talk, and I was like, yeah, she does that all the time. <laughs> I get it. He was enlightened. A little revelation, if you will. A little perspective. He had learned a little bit more about who I was that day, a little bit more context, a little bit more background. The picture of who I was became a bit more clear. And so just like Jesus' conversation with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, what they knew of God through the expounding of Scripture had a, needed a little fine-tuning. But after that, it became that much more clear who Jesus was. Perspective impacts relationship. Now, there's a lot going on in the world. There's pain. So you don't have to look far to know that trouble is, is around the corner. Don't have to look far. There are many questions that we're all asking, many questions we don't have answers to, many things out of our control, many things we don't understand. But don't be mistaken. According to the narrative of scripture. God, Emmanuel, is with us. May the God who sees, who hears all of us, give us a grand revelation of his love. I pray that this will be your experience. I ask in Jesus' name.